Hey gang, it's John. Thanks for listening to this newest edition of Deep Dive. We're bringing back Glenn Burtnick. Glenn's one of my favorite guests we've ever had. And the reason for that is that he's just the perfect person for us to profile on a show like this. Because he's done so much, written so much great music, worked behind the scenes or in front of the scenes really with so many great artists, but we don't always know that much about him. And I think he's a really fascinating character and he's always hyper, hyper busy with all these other projects which we talk about in here. But thankfully because of, well, because of the quarantine, he's grounded like everybody else. And so I thought it might be a perfect time to bring him back on to deep dive one of his albums. We're going with his second album from 1987, Heroes and Zeros. Now his debut album, Talking in Code, is one of my favorite albums, but he didn't want to talk about that one. And I can kind of understand why. There's more to discuss with this follow-up album, Heroes to Zero, Heroes and Zeros. And uh, it's basically homemade. And there's a lot of interesting people that work on this album with him. And stories from behind the scenes. So I'm glad we picked this one. Uh, it had a killer first single with Follow You, but like a lot of, <laughs> sorry Glenn, like a lot of Glenn's solo output, it didn't get the attention it deserved, honestly. But the music he made was just as good as all the other AOR rock pop that was happening at that time. It's a shame it deserves to be heard. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this and I hope you check out more of Glenn's music. Okay, um, well, for starters, I feel like we should talk about the new Weaklings album, because uh, for anyone who, you're, I mentioned this when we talked before, even though you don't remember, that you're one of the busiest people I know, because you're in like five different bands all the time. You're always posting on Facebook your travel itinerary, and like, I gotta go here, and then the next day I fly here, and the next day I fly there, and um, I imagine it's exhausting, but it's probably also a lot of fun. I mean, not everybody is in your position to be as busy and in demand, which is a blessing, but the new Weaklings album is excellent. Tell us about it. The Weaklings just kind of started by accident. Uh, I, I would do these Beatle uh, shows, celebrations, uh, often, I guess, really, um, and uh, particularly every year at a theater uh, in my hometown of New Brunswick, New Jersey. And every year we would uh, celebrate the 50th anniversary of the release of a specific album mm. of theirs, you know, and, and uh, well, actually the 45th anniversary all the time. Nevertheless, when we got, when it got to the 50th anniversary, and in these shows we would replicate as best we could every note on these mm. records. But when we got to the 50th anniversary, it was their first two albums and they were it was little more than the four Beatles on those records. Occasionally, there would be an extra piano or hand claps, things that you couldn't do as a quartet live. But nevertheless, most of the recordings were of a quartet. And um, the quartet that I had uh, in my productions, we realized when we, when we played those songs, we studied those arrangements how wise how intelligent these arrangements were for four parts mm -hmm. uh, every, every part was interesting every part was well arranged uh and so that kind of led us to when we were done with that show we were like well you know maybe we should play some more gigs you know and play mm -hmm. some more early Beatles stuff so it was just for fun it, it just mm -hmm. ended up being like we're not going to make any money doing this and then slowly but surely you know we decided let's uh well let's 
record a record or something and you know sell it at gigs for a little extra cash and then and then we said well while we're recording well why don't we write a couple of songs that uh uh you, you know fit into uh-huh. this uh genre uh-huh. it slowly grew and and uh you know it turned into a, a record label approached us and uh and this is our third album we've just released now yeah would you say the weaklings are kind of your top priority? Would you say that's your main gig these days of all the things you do? It's hard to say what my main gig is. I'm in five bands right now. Yeah, five bands, yeah. you know? uh, but the weakling certainly is the original project. So mm-hmm. I'm, and the recording project of the five, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we flew out to London. We recorded, almost two albums worth of material at Abbey Road Studios, uh, Studio Two, where the Beatles recorded all their stuff. But uh, I'm in, you know, I've got a big show called The Summer of Love. I'm in a group uh-huh. called Orchestra, which is a former members of Electric Light Orchestra. Uh-huh. I'm in Liverpool. I play with Max Weinberg's, and yep. he's, got, he's got a thing called Max Weinberg's Jukebox. And then there's The Weakling. So, yeah, I'm. that's what keeps me busy is that I'm, you know, I just say yeah. yes to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's great. You're in a position to say yes. So the new album three, I want to tell you, my favorite track on that album is the song three. Is that, did you write that? Three of us did. Three, okay. Uh, of course, three of us did. But uh, yeah, yeah. The two guitar players and myself, Bob Berger, John Marjavi, really uh, came up with uh, a lot of the licks and and a lot of the song. But uh, we just kind of piled on and uh, and it came out great. Yeah, yeah. It's a really fun album. I'll be honest. Sometimes I'm skeptical of because I, it feels like does the world need people doing copies of Be- of the Beatles. Do, th- do we need that when we still have the Beatles and everyone, you know, Beatles music is like oxygen. We all know it. But you guys put a very good, like, modern spin on these on the covers that you do and the original tunes as well. And so uh, I just, I think it's great. It's, uh, and I wouldn't normally say that, but I really like this album, you know? So anyway, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned well, it. Thanks. So new. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a cool project, and I, I I agree with you. I don't know why anybody needs a a note for note attempt 
to yeah. cover the Beatles. But for instance, on this album three, there's a uh, there's only one Beatle cover, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, maybe you're a rich man, right? Maybe you're a rich man, and we do it. We pretty much do it very different than the. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like the Beatles, really. So, you know, so we're we're just uh, exercising our arranging and writing skills. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I feel bad. One of my favorite bands of all time, and I'm sure you know them, are the Smithereens, fellow Jersey guys. During their sort of fallow period, they put out a couple of Beatles covers, and it was always kind of sad to me because I thought, I love the Smithereens so much. I don't want Beatles covers from the, my favorite band, you know? I just want more of what they do. But uh, yeah, there's you. The Weaklings put out some excellent stuff. It, it kind of put them back on a lot of people's radar. You know? It did. It did. It sustained them during those period, during that period, for sure. So, okay. Well, let's talk about Heroes and Zeros. This album came out in 1987. Um, there's your solo material from back in the 80s. There's not a ton of in, uh, uh, information on these things. There's, there's not like a bunch of press articles you can go back and read. You know, there's... I did find on Discogs lots of liner notes of who played what, and I want to ask you about a lot of that, but do you remember like what time of year, even, in 1987 this came out? Well, uh, I remember it was probably late in the summer or fall. Okay. Uh, I remember recording it early in the year into summer, uh, and then, yeah, probably probably in the fall it came out. Okay. Eighty-seven, yeah, that's too bad that there's not a lot written about it. I, I was really proud of it at the time. You know, I was coming off of the the earlier album. My first album on A and M was Talking in Code. On one hand, I wanted to do a, an electronic album, and I wanted mm-hmm. to use a lot of synths and and things that were going on at the time. But I, I, the producer I worked with on that album also kind of uh, he kind of took over. He was a bit too mm-hmm. heavy-handed for me. And I'm proud of that record, but my reaction to that album was, A and M. I want to re- I want to record this album myself with my mm-hmm. friends, and I want to mm-hmm. do an album that I feel like is mine. You know, yeah. so I played the guitars or a lot of the you know I, the songs, the recordings were all based on me playing a guitar and singing a song. So it's a little less uh, arranged, uh, a yeah. little less bells and whistles than the previous album they're both i think of them as very different i I think they are but you know it's Mm -hmm. the same guy writing the same songs you know true talking in code to me is just a i love that album it's perfect and i know and it's funny because we had talked until yesterday that's the one we were going to talk about and i in getting ready i was thinking you know as much as i love every song on this album it does feel like it's so synthesized that I don't even know what there's not like a lot of dynamics that I can really hook into to talk about in here. There's it other than it feels like it was great songs run through the eighties machinery, you know, but there is more depth, I guess, to the heroes and zeros. I, the thing I like about talking in code is that every one of those songs is as machine as they sound, you strip them down and they are just, solid pop songwriting at its core. And I imagine you with a, an acoustic guitar working on those songs and uh, they're just as good. They don't need the gloss, but the gloss is fine. Heroes and Zeros, there's more dynamics in the sound. It can go acoustic once in a while. You know, it's not just the streamlined gloss from start to finish. Yeah, I, I will. I will point out, though, that uh, Heroes and Zeros also... 
has gang vocals and power chords and <laughs> gated snare drum, these big yeah. snare drums, are very 80s as well. So yeah. I, those it two is. albums are kind of two different sides of 80s overproduction, you know? True. I could see that. I could see that. Um, how did you, now it's produced by David Prater, who yeah. um, has done a few other things. How did he come into your orbit? How did, did you select him? Oh, yeah. He was a friend okay. of mine. He was playing drums in my band. And he's very talented. He had his own band at the time. And I said, David, do you want to co-produce this record with me? Because I really liked the demos that he had done with his band at the time called Driving School. So he said, okay. And crazy. We set up. We rented gear. We set up in his basement in Verona, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And uh, we recorded, uh, you know, and then we mixed at the Hit Factory. But uh, yeah, David and I worked really hard. Also, Plinky, uh, Plinky was involved. A lot of you know, we asked a lot of people to get involved uh, with the album. But basically, it was David and me, for the most part, uh, recording an album. Yeah, yeah. I had read something about you recording this in a basement. That must have been a pretty tricked out basement. Um, <laughs> you know, for the '80s, especially because this album sounds great. So was that the intention all along to make this kind of homemade record or is that a, circumstances led you there? Well, you know, we start, we did start in a recording studio. We cut three songs in a recording studio in a beautiful recording studio, the house of music. But at the end of it, we felt we didn't like the engineer mm -hmm. and, and we kind of looked at the, uh, we looked at our budget and we said, you know, this is really, this is really expensive. I mean, at, yeah. at that point, the music industry was at kind of at its peak yeah. and, uh, and everybody was making just oodles of money. So if you were a newcomer without any hits going into a big, you know, 48 track studio, mm. it cost an arm and a leg, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So after, after we cut the first three songs, we said, you know, Let's let's well we had demos too. We had already probably recorded a few demos in the basement. So it was like, let's just get some great but let's rent a bunch of great material, some great microphones, mic up these drums and we'll make it work. And mm -hmm. you know, I I yeah, I really don't think it sounds much different than uh, than the albums that were, were recorded in the big studios. No, absolutely not. It's of its time. Um and that's Something that I really appreciate about your work at this time is that to me, it's sort of the best of what AOR rock had to offer back then. You know, it's an example. If you want to hear what excellent pop rock sounded like at, at that time, you play someone a Glenn Burtnick song and they get it. Oh, I see. Hooks. It rocks. There's some synthesizers. All the hallmarks of the great rock pop music from that era. <laughs> So, okay, so let's talk about Follow You. That I think that's the first track and probably, the, I believe, the first single. Did it do anything?
it, it did. It did anything is a good way to put it. Um, <laughs> it, it got it got a lot of airplay. It my it was my second video that ever got played on MTV. Uh, it, it was a single off the first album that that video got played as well. But so it got video airplay on MTV at the time. Who was king? That was the biggest mm-hmm. radio station you might say in the world, and it got it got a lot of airplay or a certain amount on rock radio stations, uh, which uh, is a th- kind of a thing of the past now, I think, or right. or not as big as it was once upon a time. But um, yeah, it, it got some airplay, and okay. uh, people seemed to like it, but it wasn't a hit. It didn't really catch on much. Right. Did it, uh, was it, did you get enough of a stronghold from it to go play like Johnny Carson or Solid Gold or... Uh, any of the sort of sh- sh- talk shows or you know shows yeah. that would have been around at the time? I did play Solid Gold. I played Top of the Pops. Nice. Uh, and that might have been it for the television appearances. Okay. Uh, yeah, we we went on the road. We uh, oh, I opened for David Bowie on the Glass Spider tour for a you... Lego store. No way! Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, it was pretty yes. fun. And that you know, and, and we'd go to the radio station. You know, I'd go to the radio sta- local rock stations when we were in that town, and I would talk about my record. And you know, it was uh, yeah, it was a, it was a fun little moment. I'll never forget uh, on the Glass Spider tour. Uh, Peter Frampton was Bowie's guitarist, and and there was this one radio station I was doing an interview at that Peter was supposed to stop by and do an interview at but he was late so they took me mm-hmm. and while i was doing the interview their you know production assistant or whatever came in the the room and said peter just left so i guess i you know i guess we pissed off uh peter but uh, <laughs> you know that's a, you know a little little anecdote that i kind yeah, of i love it oh i love it <laughs> that uh i mean can you tell me a glass spider story did you interact with bowie at all we said hello. And that okay. Was a, yeah. Okay. That was a big production. Oh it my god. It was. Yeah. yeah. I went to see Bowie a million times. Yeah. Um, th- this I didn't really understand. I didn't really relate to it. And at that point, yeah, I was so focused, uh, hyper focused yeah. on my own career and what every day was, and and trying to get my own project across. Sure. That mm-hmm. uh, I don't really remember a lot about the show. His show. Yeah. Mm. You know, the first album, I imagine you're a young guy. This is your first album. Talking in Code comes out. Crank It Up is on the radio a little bit. It all kind of dies down. And when you go into the second project, are you just full of so much energy and pent up, you know, excitement? Like, this is it. I'm, I know it's going to happen this time. I've written Follow You, and it's an obvious radio single. And is the label saying to you, we're going to get behind this? Or are, do you feel like you're on an island by yourself? <laughs> oh, a little bit of all. You know, the really? the the label A and M was a great label, and everybody was really sweet to me mm-hmm. there. But I can't say I ever really felt like I got the push kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, like I was saying earlier, I did feel like, well, if I'm going to listen to the A and R people, and if I'm going to listen to a producer, go through all these. Uh, everything that I went through trying to get the attention of the label 
with my first album and then get nothing from it mm-hmm. or next nothing from it, I might as well ch- take the reins myself mm-hmm. and control my own record. So that's kind of what happened. I like I, I asked David Prater to help me because he was really good. I you know I couldn't do it by myself. I can't watch the VU meters while I'm working on the lyrics, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. But David very gifted and and together we worked on the sounds and and, and we came up with what we came up with. You know? mm, mm. Yeah, I uh, I just wonder what that's like um, when you're young and so full of excitement and the anticipation of this thing that you worked hard on and you feel strongly about, it's got all your blood, sweat and tears in it and you release it to the world and it does what it does. And it probably doesn't meet your hopes and dreams that you had and what that feeling is like. Do you recognize it like the very first day? Is it after a month? Is it, boy, no one's talking to me about my album. Like I was hoping they would. What does that feel like? You know? Yeah, you know, it's a disappointment. I mean, yeah. I, I think that so many, I, I think that every recording artist almost feels like, when you know, when they're hearing the playback of their finished music yeah. in the recording studio, I think you, you just feel like the world is going to f- stop mm-hmm. for this. This music mm-hmm. is ultimate, you know, because you're just doing, you're giving it your best. Yeah. And it's so personal, especially if you're a solo artist. It's a very personal stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, and so you expect the world to, you know, to to yeah. take notice, you know. And then, like the majority, the grand majority of popular releases or or pop music releases, it doesn't go that way. And yeah. so you just have to, uh, you know, it is a disappointment, and you feel kind of. Yeah, kind of rejected. You go through all this crap, you know, but the, and then you you pick your you know pick yourself yeah. up. And I and I still had a deal, so it was like, well, yeah, that's true. And again, you know, yeah, good point. Okay, all right, track two, spinning my wheels. I like this song a lot. It's sort of a moody rocker. Um, it's maybe even an interesting choice for the second track on the album, but I really like this sort of, it's, you know, it's not this poppy, bright, glossy thing anymore. It gets a little heavier. Anton Fig is your drummer for these first two songs. How did you how did you come about to be buddies with Anton? 
Well, I, I, you know, I, I, li- I lived not far from New York City, and mm-hmm. I kind of know uh, a lot of those guys, Will Lee and uh, a lot of these cats. And, and actually, I told David when we started recording the album, I said, David, I don't want you to record. I don't want you to play drums. Mm-hmm. I want you to, you know, watch the meters and, and, and get into the sound as opposed to... Because, you, you know, if, you, if you're playing the instrument, that's all you hear in the mix. Mm-hmm. You're just like, mm-hmm. more of me, please. More yes. bass, whatever. Good point. So I wanted him to just kind of see the overall picture a little bit more. So we were recording those first three songs. Uh, we record, We needed a drummer. And so I wasn't sure, who, like I wanted uh, Omar Hakim, but he was yeah. too expensive. I didn't know Kenny Aronoff yet, but I just turned on the TV one night during this decision-making process to watch Letterman. And I was like, uh-huh. Anton was killing it. So it was like, yeah. well, there's the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> that's great. So we, we just, we got his number and called him up and said, come out to New Jersey and record three songs. Mm-hmm. With us. I love it. That's great. Yeah. Have you guys remained friends? We don't see each other that often, but whatever okay. we do, we're happy to see each other. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Any uh, any stories of the writing of Spinning My Wheels? Is there an interesting anecdote there? Well, uh, I wrote it with Bob Berger, who is in The Weaklings with me. And my history ah. my history with him is that we, we've written songs together for 30, maybe more, maybe more than 30 years. Yeah. But we were never perform. We never in a band together until now, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, I wrote it with Bob, and a big part of the arrangement of this song really is, I consider, due to Plink Gilio, who's a keyboard player and actually a master musician. Uh, he plays every instrument, but he's uh, he came up with this uh, synthesizer approach to the verses and, and you know it just killed me as soon as i mm-hmm. heard his idea i said let's go with that so we based it it was a song that bob and i had but it was kind of this approach that plink had and he's on that song he's on a lot of this record i would think anyway so that's my thought about that okay okay yeah i had it written down to ask you about that later who is plinky what who is this guy you've talked about him a, mention, a couple of times sounds like he was very important to this project. Who is he? Well, at the time, I was married to his sister. Oh, that'll help. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he has a recording studio in Dayton, New Jersey, and he's wildly talented guy. His mother called him Plinky when started when he was a little kid because he would just walk up to a piano and just put it together instantly. He, he uh-huh. just had a real, a real innate ability you know he's with me a lot of my uh musical adventures you'll note you'll notice plinky's uh yeah included you know that's great okay yeah i wondered what the story with that was um okay great uh yeah i like spinning my wheels a lot track three is walls came down this one's kind of a this one's very anthemic
if I were sequencing, I probably would have switched those two songs around, even though it works fine. And I'm curious, what, how do you, are you heavily involved in the sequencing? Is that, sure. I imagine with David being your friend, the two of you are sort of obsessing over this, right? Who, go, yeah. what goes where and why? Well, uh, really, it was around that time that I came up with my the philosophy I had for most of my career, which has been put your best, your strongest statement first. Yeah. So follow you struck me as okay. This is the closest thing to a a signal. Uh huh. And and then yeah, I thought that uh, spinning my wheels was the most unique possible. It is. Good point. Uh, yeah. On the record. And, uh, and I thought it, that could be a single too, just because it doesn't sound like everything else on the radio. Mm -hmm. So, so that's probably why we put it right there. Second. Mm. Yeah. I, um, I always think of a, of the sequencing of an album, sort of like a batting order for baseball. You know, you kick it off with a couple of fast, uh, punchy tunes. And then when it comes to the third, fourth or fifth spot, that's the cleanup spot. That's when you're going to put the big power ballad or the you know what i mean like the big five minute rocker the epic whatever and I, I always think of it like a batting order well also now that i think of it spinning my wheels is the only only ballad on the record i guess that's true kind of well, yeah your ship gets through is as well but in any case uh yeah so it was good point been the power ballad so to speak yeah well, it works. Um, yeah, walls came down. Did you? Uh, did you? First of all, the drums on this is Chuck Berge, yeah. whose name pops up a little bit. Is there? I think there's a story there. What's the story with Chuck Berge? Uh, I don't remember it. Uh, he he was playing with Foreigner. He lived. Oh, okay. He lived nearby David. <laughs> He's okay. a really cool guy um, and uh, and a great drummer and and. You know, so it's like, hey, Chuck, what are you doing? You come down and record this song with us. You know, I, I will say that uh, this album was almost always recorded, started with me on an acoustic guitar playing along to a click track. Mm. So then Chuck Berge, in this instance, would come in and we'd already have my, my, my acoustic guitar and my vocal on tape and he would play drums to that mm. and then and then we would add, the bass player would come in and record his track and then the key you know one yeah. by one is how we recorded uh, this record for sure yeah i think i read that somewhere that it's almost all overdubs so no at no point is there like a band in a room jamming together seeing what they come up with it's all layer upon layer upon layer it sounds like i think so yeah i'm looking yeah. at the yeah, yeah, that I, that is really the way that was put together. Okay, okay. Um, all right, the track four, <laughs> track four is "Stupid Boys," "Suckers for Love."
this one's kind of this one's kind of I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of the forgetful one, I guess. Or it it's uh, it feels sort of of its time. And I think I read an interview where you feel the same. That's why I feel like I can say that. It sounds like you don't love it, John. Well, uh, no, I did, you know I love you. You know I love these albums front to back. This one's just this song is just a little silly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, pop okay. music is uh, kind of novelty songs, you might True. say, and. True. And I was trying everything, you know. Yeah. It was, uh, I was a young man. It was like, you know, I was uh, disappointed that I wasn't Bob Dylan for my generation. So I was trying everything I could by this point. And, um, you know, it's a pop song. I get very influenced by Lee Michaels' Do You Know What I Mean? Oh, good one. And and the other thing about it is that when it came to us, it needed an instrumental break, like a solo. I said, you know what? Let, let's just go upstairs into the kitchen, find some pots and pans, bring them down here, and I will play them with spoons and ladles and shit. And that's exactly what the solo on that record is. So that's I can that, you know? That's wild. Well, it was worth it, that alone, to hear that story. That's great. <laughs> now, just so you know, if I had read an article that said, Stupid Boys is my very favorite song, I never would have called it silly. Not to your face. But you, I read that you thought so too. So I was just kind of agreeing with you that it's a funny kind of kind of silly song. It's not bad. It's just I, uh, I'm I'm not offended, and uh, you know, uh, opinions. You know, it's it's <laughs> like what, what's your flavor? Your your favorite flavor of ice cream? I mean, you're you're entitled to what yeah, you like. You know, that's true. That's true. Um, okay, let's bounce back with track five because this is my favorite song on the on the album. Love goes on. And it's written with Neil Sean. And he's played on a couple of, he plays on a few things on here. How did you connect up with Neil? Uh, I, uh, a few years earlier, I was in Jan Hammer's band. Jan oh, right. From Mahavishnu Orchestra, who ended up making a, a, a killing with uh, doing the Miami Vice show. Right. Yep. And Jan and Neil made a, a pair of albums for Columbia. And they weren't getting along and they needed a single. So they called me, I, you know, Jan said, I, I want Glenn to help. So I, I went up to Jan's studio, Neil was there. We all stayed together, tried ideas. We were, you know, we were playing as a trio. I was on bass 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I was kind of the referee between these two guys. They were both hard-headed, super creative guys. So in any case, uh, we came up with a song called No More Lies, which was uh. the lead single from that album, and it did really well. And I didn't know you co-wrote that. Yeah, I wrote a good portion of that song. No um, way! Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, it was, uh, so, so you know, Neil took note, we, we got along, and uh, we stayed in touch. And I actually helped Neil on a couple of his solo albums, too. I got involved with some of the writing and stuff. But it, for whatever it's worth, I called him, because I, I wanted some, you know, guitar hero kind of moments. Yeah. Um, this record and uh neil's a killer you know he's a great guitarist and uh he was great and he was working with sammy hagar they put it out together it was a cross between me being the bass player and kenny aronson being the bass player and kenny got it but in in the interim i had written a couple of songs with neil or ideas with neil and the melody to the chorus of this song Love Goes On was what Neil was playing on guitar uh, against the arpeggio that I was playing on guitar, which is the song was built on. So in any case, so I took that beautiful melody and I said, well, that's the chorus. And then I wrote a song around it. And uh, when it was time to record, I said, Neil, you got to play on this. So I flew out to uh, Sausalito, I guess it was, and uh, recorded Neil on a couple of songs. That's great. Yeah, I uh, I love this song. I thought it would have made a perfect follow-up single from this out. So would Spinning My Wheels, you're right. Your I especially love your vocal performance. Those inflections that you do are fantastic. And they just elevate the song to a new level. I love when songs have little sprinkles of pixie dust, little things, a chord change, a vocal inflection, whatever, that makes it stand out, makes it magic. And that's what you do in this song, and I love it. I am curious when when Neil agrees to co-write with you, is his expectation that his song becomes the first single? Does he care if it's an album track or what happens? Is he just along for the ride? Well, he, he didn't really he didn't express that. Um, okay. I mean, there is a certain amount of possessiveness that I suppose you have when you record with somebody. You know, you you hope that's going to be the big moment. I, I can tell you, I recorded. Another song for this record, uh, there was uh, another one that uh, we didn't include that we had Jan Hammer play a synthesizer solo on. Mm. And we didn't, because we didn't record it, uh, we didn't include it on the release. Jan felt a little offended. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, so I get it. I do understand when you you ask people to do things and that it's like, well, how come that's not your big hit? You know? Yeah, right. Um, that song with Jan wasn't some kind of day, was it? No. Oh, okay. I wondered if, because at the time I'm a bit, I'm kind of obsessive about movie soundtracks, and you had some kind of day on the Armed and Dangerous soundtrack, and then you had uh, the song on Bill and Ted, not so far away. And I wondered if it was one of those, and it ended up being kind of repurposed, but doesn't sound like it. Okay. Um, all right. So we're gonna flip the record over for song on side two. Heard it on the radio. Dreams. She 
The song's kind of a banger. It just rocks. And I'm curious, are you the one primarily playing all the guitars on this song? I think I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually not, there weren't that many people involved with this one. It was kind of that really. But yeah. Yeah. I wrote it with a guy named Vinnie Danielli, who I do the Summer of Love with. Yeah. It was just, uh, I thought it was like a AOR kind of song. So we kept it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rocker. I um, when you make an album like this, you kind of touched on this with spinning my wheels. Do you do you go into it trying to sort of touch, make it diverse? You know, we've got a kind of a moody power ballad over here. We got an outright banger over here. We've got the walls came down for our anthemic epic song over here. Do you go into it like that, or is it just whatever tickles your fancy? That's what you write. Well, back then, uh, in the era of albums making. Uh-huh. Because because that is a very quaint and antiquated thought today. But, yeah. you know, we've turned around now. We're back into a singles world. You know, I don't know how many people buy records, listen to, I mean, buy albums, listen mm-hmm. to the entire selection in sequence and all of that. But nevertheless, back in those days, yes, I, uh, you know, I, I think at least most people at the time wanted to make a cohesive uh you know, statement with an arc and all that. See, my favorite album in the world is probably, it's either, uh, I love Axis Bold is Love by Jimi Hendrix mm. and a, a white album by the Beatles. Now the white mm. album is so versatile. Yeah. And I think that makes for good album listening. True. Because if everything sounded the same, if everything was the same formula, same kind of song, it's like a redundant thing. Whereas, you know, I do believe I prefer records that, you know, it just has a, a couple of different adventures uh, yeah. with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, good point. Oh, and, and then you you throw in the provocative, these are my two favorite albums. I love when people do that. Axis Bold is Love, huh? And uh, you like that better than, like, uh, Are You Experienced? Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Wow. Yeah, That's I mean, they're, they're both incredibly great. But uh, uh, are you experienced? Sounds thin to me. It doesn't huh. sound as good. And um, I just think, yeah, I think that Jimmy's voice, his guitar, everything, the, yeah. the way the album starts, the way the album ends, uh, Axis is just incredible to me. I, my yeah. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. I love hearing stuff like that. Uh, okay. So track uh, track two on side two is Abilene. Thank you. 
This is a co-write with Martin Briley of Salt in My Tears. How do you know Martin Briley? You know, around that time, I was a big collaborator and I was co-writing songs with... It's like every songwriter in New York and L.A., you know, like I get together with all these other songwriters. My... I guess it was my publishing company. I don't even know who was setting me up, but I was meeting a number of songwriters that, uh, to this day, they're friends, you know. And, and nice. uh, Martin is a—he's a really talented songwriter, and uh, I really like working with him. Uh, we've written a number of songs, but Abilene came out particularly good. My my A and R guy—he didn't really Carter. His name was—he—he he didn't really like that. Uh, the rhyme scheme was a British rhyme scheme. Oh, Abilene, who can tell what might have been? Abilene and Bean, uh, you know, like, uh, and and I just kind of flubbed it so that it, it was close enough, but it kind of bugged it kind of bugged my A and R guy. That's just off the cuff. That's one of the things I remember now. Yeah, I'm proud of that one. I think that's a pretty good one. My guitar playing, my my songwriting and my guitar playing was pretty good at the time. I uh. I based a lot of my songs on these arpeggios that I was coming up with that were interesting with these notes hanging over and Love Goes On and Abilene has that technique. So does mm -hmm. Follow, but in any case, it's, it's, it's kind of a guitar thing, but um, it, it, that was what propelled the song for me. Mm. Yeah, it's a classic. Uh, is there an Abilene? No. It, no. it, it, it just kind of rhymed and it was a three syllables and it worked. That's, that's great. Completely <laughs> fictitious. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, when you, how many different, I didn't even think to ask this question. Maybe it's a dumb one, but you talking about the arpeggios and the guitars and everything at the time. And I'm sure it's probably even more so today, but back then, did you have like three or four different guitars and you wrote differently on each one and each one sparked different ideas from you or did it not, did stuff like that not matter? Yeah, it didn't really matter. I, I, okay. I you know, I, I always just keep a guitar around mm -hmm. here. Let me show you something. I don't know if you can hear this, but this is a uh, Abilene went like this. So I'm like, all of those notes, or most of them, most of them just keep ringing. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. And also, I was really into this ringing acoustic guitar, this, this sparkly thing. So Yeah. You know, so that's what Abil Abilene was just, I, I came up with that and, and then I wrote a song around it, you know, wow. and likewise the, uh, the Neil Schoen thing, uh, I had this, I, I played it for Neil and he, you know, he would, he came yeah. that melody on top of this. So anyway, so I'm just using this as an example. Oh, that's fascinating i love that you just did that thank you it's interesting when you started playing abilene and maybe i'm way off it reminded me a little bit of time stand still by rush i've been listening to a lot of rush because of neil peart dying and everything yeah, yeah. i well, uh 
interesting because, well, maybe that was a style of the day, you know, now that you mention it, I don't know. I was not a big Rush fan. My wife is, but it's certainly, I, I have, I did go to see them with her and I was pretty yeah. blown away. But yeah. yeah, that, you know what? That is kind of an Andy Summers thing. Oh yeah, that's yeah. it. Now that yes. I think, of it, yeah, yeah. Yep. Which was very the eighties. They, they owned the eighties, you know, they sure did. Yeah. Good point. Oh, I love this. I could talk like that for hours. Very nice. Okay. The uh, eighth song, Here Comes Sally. And this one, another Jersey brother. You have Southside Johnny on harmonica. I'm guessing it's the Jersey Connection. Were you guys buddies too? Yeah, yeah. I still see him every once in a while. I live in Asbury Park now. But funny thing about that song is that before I got my record deal, I played that song with uh, a band called La Bamba and the Hubcaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became really popular along the Jersey Shore. And there were like, there were like three or four bands covering it. And it wasn't a record. It wasn't really a. It was like a. It was like a small record that came out, but it, it wasn't really a, a, a national release at all. It became a real popular song, and when I brought it to A and M Records, they had no. They didn't see why. They weren't interested in it. They didn't like it. I didn't record it for Talking in Code, my first album. Oh. So here it was. I was taking charge of my second album. And I said, well, look, I, I already, I've already seen reaction, public reaction to this song, so why not record it? Mm-hmm. So we, we tried to put a modern spin on it, and uh, we recorded it. And I thought, you know, it needed a solo. And I thought, you know, let's, uh, let's keep it the Jersey Shore thing, and let's ask Southside Johnny, to, who's a great harmonica player, by the way. Let's ask him the, if he'd play a harmonica solo, and he did very nicely. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's so good. Is there a Sally? Well, that, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I wrote the song with Bob Miller and Andy Dorfman, and it was completely 
fictional, but uh, when I was a kid, my best friend Carl Brooks had a Hagstrom electric guitar that I loved, and I borrowed it a lot, and he named it Sally. So I always loved mm. that name. And then when it came around to writing this song, I, you know, I thought, well, Sally's a great rock title, great, great name for a, a girl that appears in our pop song. And then about four to five years later, my then wife got pregnant. And, and uh, I said, well, how about, how about we name the kid Sally? And, mm. and Sally is now in her uh, late 20s. And uh, she's a real person, but this song right. was not about her because she didn't exist. Oh, that's great. Back in college, I dated a girl named Sally off and on for like five years. And we would always try to collect songs that had Sally in the title, you know, because there there's a few of them. That's one of those songs that gets thrown out or those names that gets thrown out in songs. And this was one of the ones that we added to our collection of Sally songs back in the day. Good. Um, uh, it's kind of a fun little shuffle this song it almost feels like there's less happening in the production and i wondered if you know because as we mentioned talking in codes especially has you know just layer over layer of layer of stuff this mm -hmm. one feels like it's got some stuff stripped out and that's what kind of gives it its power are you aware of this as you're making it are you and david saying you know what less is more on Here Comes Sally. If we turn it into a shuffle and we strip away some of the noise in the gloss, it's going to be even more powerful. Yeah. I, I, you know, back then there was a tendency, and we did this on, on this record, where you would not just record one bass guitar, you'd record three and you'd put them all together. And so it, it, it would make them sound bigger. You wouldn't record just one guitar. You'd record the guitar playing the same thing mm. four times you know, you wouldn't just sing the the background vocal just with one voice. You'd have like a choir of people. It's like gang vocals, power chords. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of overkill that way, but mm -hmm. simpli simplification uh, in the arrangement. A big thing about that song that I remember was, and it was for this version, version only, was I was tapping on with drumsticks on on like wood ta 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 uh, so i really wanted that to propel the song and to be up in the mix and you know if you add too much other stuff you start to lose uh some of these kind of nuances so mm -hmm. i think that that might have that good might point. have us you know yeah good point okay speaking of little nuances the next song second to last scattered has some nice cowbell in it
again, I'm always just fascinated with who makes these decisions. As you and David are in the basement, you know, building these songs from scratch, someone says, I know what this needs, cowbell. You know, is that what happens? I, you know what? Had you asked me a minute ago, is there a cowbell on Scattered or not? I wouldn't know. So, so you've just informed me that there's a cowbell on Scattered. It sure uh, sounds like one. <laughs> I mean, you know, the record is 1987, so it's a long right. time. But I have no idea whose idea. Okay. No okay. Idea. okay. Um, I, you know, I'm not a musical expert, but to me, as an outsider, as a layman, it sounds like it sounds like uh, cowbell. And you know, now that things now that's been turned into a meme, but it's also still an effective way to make a song kind of fun and cool and so i wondered what you know if that was the choice looking at the credits and it says background vocals and percussion glenn burtnick and david prater and so you know i i'm gonna guess that david said i think it needs cowbell but okay i'm guessing okay okay now this uh song has doug worthington on guitar who's doug worthington great guitarist he's actually on a number of tracks Mm -hmm. like he's on follow you and he's playing a he's playing most of it, but because Neil takes the guitar solo, uh, Doug kind of gets overlooked. And Doug's on Wall came Walls came down and spinning my wheels, and he's he's on a, a number of things. Uh, yeah. Great guitarist. He was in David's band, uh, Driving School, and uh, I see Doug every once in a while. I see we keep in touch on Facebook, and okay. uh, he's um, he's just a really cool guitarist. Okay. Who does the kind of rap section in here? It's not an outright rap. It's more of like a spoken word bit yeah. in the middle of the song. Who is that? That's me. Um, is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's got, it sounds like a, a deeper, bit. darker voice. Yes. Yeah, slowed down. Okay. You, you know, what I do miss in the old school of recording analog was uh, you would slow down the tapes or speed them up, you know, the, the, and and then you play it back. I mean, the Beatles, a lot of Beatles songs are sped up, but even Strawberry Fields is slowed down predominantly. Uh, you, like John Lennon's voice is going, let me take you down. You know, they, there's, right. there's slowed down effects. And, and anyway, I thought that uh, I would sound more manly if, I was, <laughs> if my voice was slowed down. So in order to do that, you speed up the tape and you sing, or in this case, rap, faster mm, and then you slow it down your voice is slower and deeper so that's that's what that was about okay that Correct. makes sense i think that i think that's how they created the chipmunks back absolutely. in the day absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah same kind of thing okay all right the last song the day your ship gets through features bruce hornsby who is one of my very favorites
How did this happen? All these people on your album that you never would have guessed. Why? How Bruce? First of all, I I, I was crazy about Bruce Hornsby's early records. I mean, Me I, I I just thought that he he owned it. This was kind of the only the only song. Well, you know what? I needed an accordion. I didn't know that many. I, you know who the heck plays accordion? But I knew that Bruce did, and we kind of knew each other. Uh, I was at one of these promotional uh, record party things, uh, and I met Bruce. Uh, it was like at a bowling alley in L.A., and he, he wanted to talk to me about the guys that uh, had produced, had directed my, a, a video mm -hmm. for Lit Red House, because mm -hmm. they were about to, they were trying, they were suggested to be video producers for his for. That's just the way it is, I guess. Okay. You know, his first record came out a little bit after mine. Mm -hmm. So we kind of met that way. Then I was at another like fancy party that um, there was a piano at and he sat down and just killed it. Very musical guy, like super yeah. player. You know, we just hit it off. And, and my listening habits, my, my musical tastes are really wide. You uh -huh. know, I love classical music and I love jazz and I love some really outside, you know, outsider art stuff. And mm -hmm. I love, for instance, I love revolution number no. nine music. <laughs> you know, like I, so I have a really broad, uh -huh. um, at that time, these were all kind of the cats that were really happening, like Bruce Hornsby yeah. and Neil Schoen and you know, so so I was just kind of drawing from what was going on at that time. But I, like I said, I I just think the world of Bruce Hornsby. So I asked him. He came into the L.A. lot to play. We recorded him playing accordion, and then he he sat down at the piano after because he had to learn the song. Mm -hmm. He sat down at the piano, and I said, "Bruce, that sounds great. You know, play that." Mm -hmm. So we didn't actually foresee it as piano playing such an important part on the song. Yeah. It was really kind of an acapella vocal song that I had right. You know, I said, well, let's just add a little accordion. And then once Bruce came in and he started to show his incredible musicality, it was like, I want that. I want yeah. that on the record, you know? Yeah. So he did great. He did great. He's, uh, he's the man. I just, I love him and I'm with you. I, I have all of his stuff, but those early albums, there just was nothing like it. And they were so great. Back in the days, I saw. Have you ever seen him live? I saw him in concert about uh, seven or eight years ago, and right. it's a little bit of a frustrating experience because he doesn't want to play those songs, and if he does, <laughs> he's not going to play them the way you remember them. So you're kind of you. He and he loves it that way. You can tell you're a you're at my show. You do what I tell you to do. You know. So it was great, but it's just it's a little frustrating. And I remember. He kept singing, and this was years ago. This, he kept singing all these jokey songs that he was making up on the spot about Donald Trump. And I think this was the first time Donald Trump was thinking about running for president. And uh, anyway, I think about he, Bruce is a unique, unique talent. I like him a lot. Yeah, I, I saw him early. So Did I, you? 
I saw him when he was playing those the right songs, you know, the right way. Yeah. I I, I kind of get it. I understand. He's he's a jazz musician. Yeah, you know, that's it. he really is. I mean, I think that's he's closer to that than anything. And I see that with a lot of artists. Um, certainly, it wouldn't surprise you if a jazz artist were to play one of their, you know, po- most popular mm-hmm. numbers a different way. You know, so I, I what's his name from the the Young Rascals from the Rascals, Felix Cavalier. Oh, Felix, yeah. He he butchers the melodies and the phrasing of every Rascals hit when he performs live now. Same with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, it's like, you can't even tell what song he's singing. And I get it. I understand it because if Heroes and Zeros had gone multi-platinum at the time, and, you know, that would mean by now I would have played Follow You one million times. (laughs) And I, I will say that there is monotony in being a musician, actually, uh, Joey Mullen from Badfinger tells this story that they went into the studio after they had their first big hit, Come and Get It, which McCartney wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, they, were, they were recording their second album. And George Harrison was producing them. And George Harrison comes in that week and he says, you know, congratulations, you guys are number one this week. He said, now... For the rest of your lives, every time you set foot on a stage, you're going to have to play that song. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of monotony. It's a bit of a, you know, yeah. a prison sentence, you could say. Yeah. It's yeah. also a blessing. It's a blessing and a curse. And for us, the audience of the, the, our favorite songs, we don't want those songs to change. But the artist, I guess, you know, they, they have a choice to make. You yeah, know, are they yeah. going to ple- be people pleasers or please themselves? And right. being an artist really requires both. You know. Yeah, I could totally so, see that. I get it, but yeah, I would be frustrated uh, if Bruce Hornsby wasn't playing. You know, Valley Road and all the all, all those great. Yeah, songs. that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. All right. Speaking of which, what are the chances that someday? In as until your life before your life ends, that we get to see Glenn Burtnick on a stage doing his classic albums, you know, like I want so badly to buy a ticket to see Glenn Burtnick in concert and hear "Follow You" and "Little Red House" and "Crank It Up" and "Spinning My Wheels" and "Love Go Roar, Love Is the Ritual." How does that is that ever going to happen? <laughs> well. You may have missed it because I've done it a lot, but have it, you? Maybe it's I'll, just in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I mean, and there was a shrinking audience, so it yeah. may it over the years. I mean, I probably spent twenty years uh, drawing from those songs, and the audience kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And after a while, it's like, you know, this, this isn't necessarily drawing crowds, so. Maybe, you know, maybe I should just let it go. Now, what are the odds? Eh, actually, the odds aren't terrible. Okay. Because there are enough people like you who are kind enough to feel uh-huh. that way and to let me know. And that, that makes, of course, that makes me feel good. So, you know, 
yeah, I wrote these songs and, you know, who knows how long yeah. uh, I, I have until I'm like going to be incapable of singing. But no. <laughs> one thing I, I wanted to turn back to say, the day your ship gets through, the, the, the last song on mm-hmm. Heroes Zeros, very much like I, I stole an idea from the final song on Axis Bold is Love. Oh. Jimmy, Jimmy went through the whole song and it kind of finishes. And then there's a drum fill and they go into the whole song uh, or the progression of the song modulated to another key mm-hmm. with a screaming, ripping guitar solo. Yeah. So that's exactly what I did with The Day Your Ship Gets Through. It's like this acapella-ish kind of very soft romantic kind of song that ends and then there's a drum fill and then we're doing the progression of the song with us with neil Schoen's screaming guitar bruce hornsby you know really barrel house piano up yeah modulated to a higher key so that was the thing that uh i'm glad you mentioned that that was on my list and i was on to other things so i'm yeah, yeah. it's uh and there's a guy named nico bolus on finger snaps mm-hmm. Is he like a world famous finger snapper? I was hoping that this would lead to him having a career as such. However, um, no, he was he actually was our mixer. He, he mixed okay. the record. He mixed the record, and you know we we wanted him. Uh, well, he I, I wanted finger snaps there. He didn't like the finger snaps we had. They were too mechanical. They were probably a drum machine because. That, this was the era of the drum machine, and I think there is some drum machine on spinning my wheels. But anyway, Nico uh, said, nah, man, you know, this needs some real speaker snaps. So <laughs> it was like, well, you go do it, you know. So he went out there, and we recorded our sound mixer, our mixer, mixing yeah. engineer. He, he, that was his big moment. Good. Okay. Yeah, I wondered. I have an odd question. Are your early albums on CD? Because, and let me preface this, I look for them occasionally, and whenever I see them on CD, it always appears they're on, like, bootleg websites or irreputable websites. You know what I mean? Do you know for sure? What, are, like, what what are you holding in your hand right now, a vinyl or a CD? Vinyl. However, the first one, Talking in Code, 1986, was only released on CD in Japan. So oh. that company was called Pony Canyon. Okay. So they pressed a certain amount, but those fetch a lot of money. And and again, I'm never sure if it's a real thing or if it's someone's copy. You know. Yeah. Uh, and then and then Heroes of Zeros did come out on CD uh, in the states. Now, since there was a German company that I never heard of, mm. uh, that like ten years ago or so released. Talking in code on CD, which seemed impossible to me, mm-hmm. so I suspect that that was illegally done, mm. and I certainly didn't get any, you know, n- notification or anything. Right. So interesting, you know. Uh, yeah, I just wonder. It's it's a shame. I mean, here we're talking about these great albums, and they're hard to find. You'd have to be a vinyl collector, and then you'd have to really, you know, be a crate digger to find them. It's uh, it's unfortunate. I illegally downloaded them i'm sorry when i a few 10 or 15 years ago when i really decided i wanted everything glenn burtnick ever put out that was the easiest way to get it because the stuff's hard to find you know well you know it's 
you know, it's all moved on by now. I mean, even the idea of CDs. Yeah. The, you know, there are there are some automakers making cars without CD players. Um, yeah. It's really a streaming world at this point. And, well, you know what? I don't have a CD player in my home, I don't think. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I've gone back to vinyl. I, yeah. I, I love vinyl. But... But it is a streaming world, and uh, uh, you can look up, you can look me up on Spotify or wherever, and you can probably find a lot of it. I don't know if you can find all of it, but I don't uh, think so. Let me, you know what? I've looked before, and the various spellings of your name don't help in this situation. Well, but uh, yeah, yeah, you know. But let me see the the Palookaville, the later ones, Palookaville, and Welcome to Hollywood are on there, and. Um, Couple other things. The trouble with Sally. So you like Sally? You have you have here comes Sally, and you have a song called "The Trouble with Sally." Uh, yeah, and, well, the trouble with Sally is about my daughter. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, okay. So yeah, no, the, this older stuff is kind of hard to find, unless you collect vinyl. I don't collect vinyl. That's the problem. And all and all my releases, well, the, my A and M releases are out of print. Yeah. So. Uh, I ex I'm an exclusively out of print kind of guy, <laughs> but uh, you know that makes me that makes the value go up, I suppose. Yeah, I yeah. There you go. Um, okay, last question. I um, you know it was a few years after this. You go and join Sticks. I learned something yesterday that it was I thought was kind of interesting. I um, I interviewed a member of uh, GTR. Do you remember GTR with uh, When the Heart Rules the Mind? Yeah. Um, I've had the bass player Phil Spalding on here before, and he mentioned that the GTR lead singer Max Bacon was in the running to take over for Tommy Shaw in Sticks there for a little while. And I thought that would have been right around the time maybe that you did too. Do you know anything about this? Never heard of him. Never heard of him. <laughs> okay. That doesn't mean he wasn't in the running, you know? Okay. Okay. I just wondered if you were like, oh, yeah, he was right there. It was between me and him or something like that, you know? Okay. I All mean, right. I and I didn't quite, you know, I didn't necessarily fit into that band, you know. So that, so maybe they had, uh, maybe, maybe the other guy would have been uh, more of a Tommy Shaw than I. I don't know. He's a really excellent vocalist, but uh, I'm just curious. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Glenn, for talking with me. It's always a pleasure. I uh, I just love so much of your music, and I wish it was more easily accessible, and I wish the world had easy access to it and everyone owned a copy of, you know, Heroes and Zeros and Talking in Code. But it's, uh, I just wanted to sh sh shine a light on your great early work. So thanks for doing it with me. Very kind of you. And thanks for forcing me to brush the cobwebs out of corners of my brain that I so rarely even go to. There you have it. Heroes and Zeros. Great album. Too bad it's hard, kind of hard to find. I, I mean, like we were talking in there, I think it probably did come out on CD, but it's not like you're going to find it in a store somewhere. I'm sure you can uh, order it on Amazon, of course, like everything else. But if you're a collector like me, that's no fun. That takes all the fun out. Um, I'm probably just going to have to do it anyway. If you're a vinyl person, it's probably much easier to find, but I don't collect vinyl. So anyway, I hope that you found some stuff you like. Find it, get a hold of it somehow, and check out the rest of Glenn's output because it's fantastic. We have at least two more deep dives in the can and uh, a bunch more being scheduled. So we're, and because of the Corona, we're not sticking to like one a month. We're just going to put them out whenever Yan and I can get to it. 
So anyway, you might see another one next week. I'm not sure. We also have a recap coming up with me and Yan that you're going to hear soon and a bunch of other stuff. So anyway, thanks again, Glenn. Thanks you all. I hope you're all staying safe.